If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians for one final time. I mean, we'll probably be, you know, we'll probably reference 2 Corinthians from time to time, but this is the last uh, sermon in, in this series. We've made it to the end of the book. We're going to be looking at the last eight verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 14. Uh, we started this study a little over a year ago. So our first message out of the book of 2 Corinthians was on June 14th of 2020, and 41 messages later, we're finishing it out today. So praise the Lord. Um, now let me take a second before we get in, into 2 Corinthians and tell you where we're going to go from here. I just want to take a little bit on the front end and, and, and let you know what's ahead. Um, next Sunday, I'm going to cast a little vision with respect to our path of growth. That service will we'll include, we're going to talk about the path of growth, we're going to talk about what it means to you and, and, and where you fit in. And that service is going to include our MTT graduation, so we had a number of people graduate from MTT, uh, finished up that last class in June, and that's obviously related to the path of growth, so we're going to do that next Sunday. And then Sunday, August 22nd, I need, I need you to get this down because I need you to be here on Sunday, August 22nd. Um, that entire service is going to be dedicated to the ordination of Craig Warner. So, so I, don't, I don't know if Craig was in here. He threatened to stand up and do a spin. There he is. There's Craig. He's back in the corner. Um, Craig has, has proven himself not only as a godly man but a very capable minister so we're excited uh, to have the opportunity to ordain him on the 22nd. I hope you're excited about that too. You need to be. Um, that's a big day. That's a big day for us. That's a big day not only for Craig. That's a big day for and his family, but it's a big day for, for the, our church family as well. So I, I'm asking you to make that a priority uh, to be here with us that day. Matt Brocker will be with us that morning. He's going to be part of the service as well. Um, so it's going to be a fun day. Uh, so that's August 22nd, two weeks from today. Then on the 29th, we will have our Summer's End celebration like we do every year. Um, in spite of, st of still not being able to take, you know, missions trips like, like we're used to, God's done a lot in our midst over the summer. So we're going to hear about youth camp. We're going to hear about the well retreat. We're going to hear about our Good News Bible camp and, and some missions updates. Um, and then, of course, we'll get to have some fun and eat and have some fellowship together afterwards as we play cornhole and the kids slip and slide and, you know, and all that. So, so that's going to be a fun day on the 29th. And then starting in September, uh, so we'll start September 5th. I know that's Labor Day weekend, but we're going to get started anyway on that, that weekend. We're going to launch into a new sermon series out of the book of Nehemiah. And that series is, is going to be titled Building for the Future. Um, out of the book of Nehemiah. And I'm excited about that. I, I hope you will be praying along with me uh, regarding all that God's going to do out of that book study. I, I, I think we're at a perfect time, and Nehemiah is the perfect book to, to set us up for all that God has for us if he tarries. Um, so that's where we're going. That kind of gives you the next few weeks uh, before we get into, into Nehemiah. Once we get into Nehemiah, we'll be there for, for a little while anyway. Um, you know, it's a there's a, there are a number of lists of names and different things in the book of Nehemiah. And so, you know, may not be verse per verse per se, but, but we're going to hit that entire book. Um, it will be an expository look at the book of Nehemiah. But before we do get into all that, we have to finish out 2 Corinthians. And um, luckily, fortunately, this week's passage isn't quite as direct and forceful as last week's. Um, I don't apologize for that message. I believe it's exactly what God had for us or I would have preached it differently. But I'm, I'm, I'm personally glad we don't have to do it two weeks in a row. Those, those weeks are tough enough on me. Um, so we get a little bit of a break, I think. Maybe, maybe not, but a little bit of a break. Um, but this week, as Paul closes out this letter, he's more fatherly. He's a little bit more encouraging. So the title of today's message is A Father's Farewell. And it's another summary message. This entire chapter, all of chapter 13, he's really summarizing everything that, that he discussed in those first 12 chapters. And so you're going to hear some things that you've already heard before, even, even the same as last week. But this week's message does come from a little bit more of a positive vantage point. Because last week, what Paul gave was a warning. Paul gave his final warning to the Corinthians, and thus it became a good warning for us as well, as, as things aren't that much different in the church today as they were in first century Corinth. But instead of a warning, today, today Paul transitions and he gives his final wishes. So he gave his final warning last week, 
Today, what we see are his final wishes. What he wishes, what he really desires for this church that he birthed, these believers that he had won to the Lord. And what we are going to find is that what Paul wishes for the Corinthians provide the core values of a godly life. It's really just that simple. So these are my wishes for all of us as well. We should all strive for them personally through the Lord's strength. And what we will find is that when we're all doing that individually, the church collectively will be better for it. I mean, that's how it always works. We'll be, we will be a better church when we make Paul's wishes our wishes. And, and, and that should interest you. That should interest you intently because a strong church today sets up the future. So we should do this not only for ourselves, but for our kids, for the next generation. Obviously, we should ultimately do it for the Lord because he deserves it. But, but we need to do it to set up the future of this church. Because I, I probably don't have to convince you that there aren't enough good churches still standing today. And we've seen a history in this country of, of good Bible-believing churches. There aren't enough of them standing today. So I want to ask you, how long do you want First Baptist Church to stand? How long? And when I say stand, I, I don't even mean still meeting on Sundays. I mean standing on the truth of God's Word. And I know that this church has been around over 160 years. What a blessing. We should praise the Lord for that. And I've only had the privilege of, of being a part of it intimately the, the past three plus years. But if the Lord tarries, will it last another 50 years in today's world? When, when most of us in this room will no longer be here, when we're gone, will this church still be standing on the truth of God's word? And we can hope, we can assume it will, but that isn't enough. Hope and assumption won't make it happen. We all, every single member of this church together, we need to take ownership and responsibility to ensure that in fact it does stand. And it stands true to God's word through discipleship, through passing down what we know to be true to the next generation. Because like it or not, we all have a part in what becomes of this church. If you are a member of this church, you can bury your head in the sand if you want. But you made an oath to the Lord. And you made an oath to us. And you're a part of what the future holds. You're a part of what this church will look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now if the Lord doesn't come back. So take ownership in that. And that's why I believe Nehemiah is so important and so timely for, for where God is taking us and, and going to set us up for the future. But I want to see Paul's wishes, but we're obviously not there yet. We need, to, we need to finish out this book and see what God has for us today. So we're going to find these final wishes as he bids them farewell. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to read verses 7 down through 14 through the end of the chapter. And Paul says, Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. The God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask him to teach us uh, what we need to get out of this this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for what you have done and are doing in this church. Lord, I pray that you use today's message to, to just strengthen our, um, our internal desire, Lord, just to serve you with our life, um, not only for you. I mean, obviously, you deserve it above all. You're worthy of all worship. You're worthy of all service. But Lord, just to, just to set up this church to be a, a beacon of light um, as long as you have us here. And so, Lord, I just thank you so much for this book of 2 Corinthians that we've now been in over a year. And, 
just this manual for ministry, Lord, I pray that you've used it. I know you've used it in my life, certainly, and I pray that you've used it in others as well. And, and Lord, I just look forward to where we're going from here. I pray that um, you will be glorified in, in all of that, Lord, that we can do what, exactly what you have for us to do, not only today, but, but for the future. Lord, pray that everything that is said today is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. We ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, so we're going to get, like I said, Paul's final wishes here. And, and, and you see how he starts here. He says, I pray to God that you do no evil. And he's praying that prayer because that is the sincere desire of his heart. That's what he wishes for them. Then you see down in verse 9, he says that he wishes for their perfection. And we're going to get to what all that, all that means when we get to that verse. But what I want you to see here as we're, as we're getting into, just into the, the, the points here is I want you to see his fatherly love. I want you to see this fatherly desire for his children and what he desires for them. And listen, all you that are parents in here, you have to feel that. You have to feel that desire that you just, what you want for your children. And it's, it's more than you want for yourself. And I, I just want you to grasp that. And, and, and you know, verses that Paul does, he does this throughout his epistles. And you see this aspect of his fatherliness to those churches he birthed and those people he won to the Lord. And, and, and some of it in the, in the past, I've looked at it and I'm like, man, I can't, I can't see that. I can't make sense of that until I had kids myself. So Romans chapter 9 is one great example. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through, th- 1 through 3, he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And Paul said that he would choose to go to hell in place of his brethren. And listen, I'm not, I'll admit it, I'm not nearly as godly as Paul. I'm not sure I could say that about all of you. But I can for sure say that about my kids. And I, I praise the Lord that all three of my kids are saved. But if they weren't, I could pray that prayer. Before you and the Lord, I could pray that prayer. Because my desire for them, as, as, as selfish as I am, and Jennifer can attest to that, as selfish as I am, my desire for them trumps it. It trumps it. And again, I'm just pointing this out because I want you to see Paul's righteousness in this area. Because what he desires for them is important. And it's important for us. We should apply them to our lives personally. And we should want them for our kids, both physical and spiritual. We should want them for the future of this church. Because his wishes provide a balanced and a God-glorifying life. And, And I say a balanced life because... You know, big surprise here. We're going to see three wishes that he has for them. And, and they provide that balance because there's, a, there's an inward and there's an outward and there's an upward aspect to them. And I know what you're thinking, but I'm not singing. No. Put your phones away. Now, shame on you for even thinking it. No, my singing days are over. I, I promise you. But the first wish that Paul has for the Corinthians and that, that we should have for ourselves, that we should have for the next generation of this church It's an outward wish, and it's purity. He wishes purity. This gets back to what we were talking about last week. Paul so desired that they would stay away from sin, that they would stay out of sin. Look back at verse 7. He's saying the same type of thing in verses 7 and 8, just in a little bit softer way. He was giving him a stern warning and telling him that he wasn't going to spare last week when he came. Now he's just saying, listen, this is what I'm praying for you. This is what I really want for you guys. Look at verse 7. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, that we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Now, before we get into all the details of this, you need to understand the context. And it's what we've been talking about for weeks. This was written within the backdrop of those who had been deceived by Satan. And he was working behind the scenes through those false teachers, through those false apostles. And Paul wrote this epistle epistle partly to affirm his authenticity, his own authenticity, so that he could remove any doubt, any denial of it. 
And certainly, these last few chapters, he wrote to end all discussion about whether he was a true apostle or not, because he, of course, was. And he wanted the church to know that he was. He wanted the church to know that he was real, that he was genuine, that he spoke for God, that he was the messenger of Jesus Christ, and that his ministry and that his message were from the Lord. So throughout this letter, he writes about his credentials as a true messenger of Christ. We've seen that over and over since we started in chapter 10 specifically. And listen, he's not trying to convince the false teachers. He doesn't care about them. He's not trying to convince the the false apostles. He's not even trying to convince the unbelieving world. He is trying to assure the church because his reputation is being maligned in their presence. And he's very aware of the fact that if the church turns away from him, that in effect, they turn away from the truth. And they turn away from Christ because Paul was the minister of Christ. He was the one that spoke truth. The false apostles were liars, and they represented Satan. And and that's important. You need to understand that context. Because when Paul says, now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved. That means the way he feels about the Corinthians being pure and staying out of sin is just as strong as how he feels about his own testimony for the Lord. He said, it's not about me. I don't want you to stay pure because so that I look good, so that we, that we are approved. What he desires from them is honesty before the Lord. Just to be honest, because you need this. You need to do this before the Lord. And again, he's taken all this time to defend his reputation. But he, said, but he then says, if you want to stay pure, this has nothing to do with me. You need to stay pure for yourself before the Lord. And listen, as important, as crucial, as essential as his reputation was to his ministry and to people trusting him and believing what he said came from God, as critical as that was, he was more than willing to set that aside in favor of their obedience. And how was he able to do that? Because he was a good father. He wanted what was the best for them even more than what was the best for himself. He was utterly selfless. And I think the only passage that epitomizes this more is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, that we already read. He was willing to go to hell for his brethren. And, and, and over and over and over, and certainly in, in, this, in this specific passage and in this book, he, he wants more for them than he wants for himself. He wants them to be honest, not, not so that he looks good, because that's what they need to do before the Lord. And, and, and again, I want you to grasp this concept as it relates to this church. For all our children, again, both physical and spiritual, what does it mean to you? What, what we're talking about, what does it mean to you with them in mind? Don't just think about it with yourself in mind right now. What does it mean to you with them in mind? What is it that you want for them? Are you willing, like Paul, to sacrifice your fleshly desires today for their tomorrow? Are you willing to to live a life of purity for them to see? For their good, not even for your good, even though it is for your good, of course. So that they have a model to live by. And listen, this isn't brain surgery. Avoiding evil is certainly something we all should take seriously. I don't think I have to convince you of that, that you don't want to be involved in evil. This is part of Jesus' model prayer to his disciples, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 13. He says, this is how you're to pray. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus also said this in John 17, 15. He said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. You see, we're to be in this world because we have a mission to do. But while we're in the world, it's God's desire. It was Jesus' prayer that we would stay away, be kept from evil. But here's the problem. 
that we have a problem with this. Because again, I think I can probably convince all of you very easily, yeah, evil's a bad thing. We should stay away from it. We still have a problem. And we see this problem over and over. And here's the problem. Sometimes we define evil in a way that the Bible doesn't. We have our own definition of what evil is. And the Bible actually says evil is something different. Because we, of course, couldn't be evil. I mean, maybe a little bit carnal from time to time. But evil, that's going a little too far. I mean, that's murderers and criminals, and I'm certainly neither of those. Well, do you know how the Bible defines evil? Evil is sin. That's it. Evil is sin, period. It's anything done apart from God. In fact, Paul said he committed evil acts in Romans 7, 19. He said, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil, which I would not, I don't even want to do it, that I do. The book of Hebrews says that unbelief is evil. Have you ever struggled with that? Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. James said that boasting is evil. James 4.16 says, But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. And I'm not even going to get into how the love of money is the root of all evil. But suffice it to say, none of us are exempt. None of us are exempt from being evil and, and exhibiting evil acts. We're not better than that. And that's why we have to be careful. And, and Paul even tells the Thessalonians to abstain from the appearance of evil in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Because it's a serious matter. It is neglect of the word of God in your life. If you've ever neglected applying the word of God in your life, you've been evil. Because that's what it is. And how easy is it for all of us to get caught up in the evil without even knowing it? Again, because we have our own definition of what it actually means. So we must be on guard. Because if for no other reason the children of this church are watching. Now, there are other reasons. But, but maybe that should even be enough. It was for Paul. He put himself aside for the sake of his spiritual children. He wanted more for them than he even wanted for himself. And this is important because it gets to, and it is about our faithfulness to the Lord. Because again, if you choose yourself over the future, if you choose yourself over the Lord, can you, can you consider yourself faithful? It's about obedience because listen, obedience is the only mark of faithfulness that God recognizes. That's how you prove it. That was last week. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove it. Prove it. So that means, so, so since obedience is the only mark of faithfulness that God recognizes, that means we have the ability to do it because he calls us to be faithful. So we have the ability to do it. That means there is no thing and no one who can keep you from obeying the Bible and serving Christ. No matter your situation. You can keep yourself from evil if you apply Bible principles. But to do so, you're going to have to recognize just how serious sin really is and the implications it has for not only today, but for tomorrow and for the future. And we talked about it last week, and, and, and Paul's approaching it from a little bit of a softer angle this time, but the issue is still the same. You know, Romans 12, 9, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. And, 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 and do you know why you should abhor that which is evil? Because God does. We looked at those things, at how he hates. God hates the sin in our life. And the most important thing in your life should be pleasing God. And because, because why? Because that's what, he, he's, he's deserving of all of it. And when you glorify God with your life, people around you see 
the next generation sees. It gives them a model to go by. So all this means that you alone are responsible for your spiritual success or failure. You alone. Nobody can keep you from it. And it's based upon your obedience. And, and, and when we talk about, we've, we've talked about this before, but, but when we talk about obedience, you know, again, it's the same as evil. We put our own definition to it sometimes. And, and, and we think we're obedient, but, but we've kind of changed, changed the game a little bit because it's not full obedience to the Lord. We'll obey the parts of the Bible that we like or, or, or the issues that aren't a struggle to us, but the other parts, it's like, well, I mean, you know, I have, I have, I have trouble there. Yeah, yeah, right, I know, I know you do. That, that's why you got to work on it. That's why you got to walk in the Spirit. That's why you got to keep going to the Lord. That's why you got to do it through His strength. Uh, you can't do it on your own. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, where, where God sent Saul a command through the prophet Samuel to gather his army and to attack Amalek, utterly destroying everything that breathed. That, those were the instructions. Every man, woman, child, and animal. But, but Saul didn't fully obey. He destroyed everything except he preserved the king and he allowed the people to take the best of the oxen and sheep. I mean, what's the harm? I mean, Saul saved only a few of the best sheep, lambs, and oxen. And he had a good reason for it. He did this so the people could sacrifice to the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, 21 says, But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. That's why they did it. I mean, what's the harm in that? That's a good reason. They wanted to take it and sacrifice to the Lord. Well, we get the answer to whether it was good or not in verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You see, God didn't think it was a good reason. You see, what Saul had done is he put his own definition to obedience. He's like, yeah, we're, we're going to do most of that. But, but I'm going to do this over here my way because this is how I want to serve the Lord. I want to serve the Lord the way I, I think it should be done, not the way God said it. And so I get to define the rules. That's what Saul did. He's like, I'm doing this for the Lord. It's just my way. Listen, keeping the commandments was required. Not keeping just what he wanted. We see what God thought about it back in verses 10 and 11. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. What God wants out of you and me this morning is, is just full obedience. It's full surrender to what he says. In the midst of wherever you happen to find yourself. Because that's what purity is. It, it's without blemish. You can't just partly obey and be pure. And truth deserves obedience. I mean, this book is true or it's not. It is truth or it's not. And if it is, then it deserves obedience. Not just the parts that we agree with. And that's what Paul was getting at in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a very interesting verse. He says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. And, and this doesn't mean that nothing can be done to attack the truth or hinder the truth. That was going on in Corinth. But he was affirming that he and, and Timothy and, and Titus and, and whoever else he was including in that we, he was affirming that they wanted the truth to prevail. They wanted the truth to be held as the standard. And come what may, they were determined to make it happen to the best of their ability. And we talked about that last week with them going by the book, laying out everything against the mirror of the word of God and, and dealing with those who went against it. Because Paul was on the truth side. And, and there shouldn't be sides, but unfortunately sometimes there are. As we make it that way. And Paul was on the truth side. He was obligated to it. 
He says something similar and also very interesting in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. There, Paul says, for though I preach the gospel, I've nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. You see, here is one thing, one very important thing that Paul understood. And this gets to our purity because when we understand this, it helps us. If you're having trouble with that and dealing with sin, understand this, and this will help you. And here's what it is. When you go against truth, it's always to your own detriment. Woe is unto me if I don't do what God told me to do. It's to a, that's who Paul said that to my own detriment. If I don't do what God, necessity, I have to. Why? Because God told me to. God called me to this. And woe is unto me to my own detriment if I don't do it. And that's true of us as well. But, but too much of our life doesn't reflect that. And, and we don't live like that. We live like we think we're going to get away with it. Can I lovingly tell you that you're not? I mean, the judgment seat of Christ, a, there is an aspect some will suffer loss. And I don't know what all that means, but it doesn't sound good. And Paul is burdened and he fears, he's concerned for the Corinthians because some of them don't understand that. And, and I'm afraid some of us don't either. Because we should be pure, we should be obedient to the word of God. We should be faithful and true to God's word. That was Paul's wish for the Corinthians. And it's, it's my wish for all of us as well. And the second, Paul has an upward wish. And that upward wish is perfection. Back at verse 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are therefore strong. Again, this just gets to this fatherly aspect that Paul has. It's like, I don't care about being weak. If you guys are strong, and we've looked at that, that, that contrast over these past few weeks and, and where true strength comes from and in our physical weakness. And he's like, I'm glad. It makes me glad when we are weak and ye are strong. And this also we wish, because it's what it leads to. Even your perfection. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Now, so the, the, the point here is his, his upward wish before the Lord. So the outward wish is purity for all to see. Again, including the next generation. The, the upward wish that he has is, is perfection before the Lord. And whenever we talk about perfection with respect to humans, with respect to us, biblically, we're never talking about sinless perfection. We know that that's not possible. While we are in this flesh, Romans 7, we've already read a verse out of that, very clearly explains to us that while we're in this flesh, we're always going to deal with some sin. Now, again, this, our, our, our desire needs to be to be pure, to not sin, to serve the Lord with our life. And there's a difference in sinning and accepting sin in your life. So there's a difference there. And so, so what we're talking about is not accepting sin, not being okay with it, hating it, getting it right when you deal with it. When you break fellowship with God, you restore it. You do that. And so, so in perfection, what we're talking about now before the Lord, it means just being spiritually mature. It means being complete in the Lord. And again, it's a good father's desire. It's one of the jobs of pastors and teachers. We've looked at this passage a couple times of late over just the past few weeks, but, but it obviously applies here. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So for the perfecting, part of our job is to help you get perfect, be made mature in the Lord. And, and we hammer this all the time, but the only way the saints are perfected is through the word of God. It is the only way. It's 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for, for, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? What does it do? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And we hammer that all the time because it's true. And you need to hear it 
over and over and over and over. And I need to hear it over and over and over and over. Because it keeps us in his word. It keeps us with the right mind, focused in the right areas. So it's the concept of growing up to spiritual maturity. From youth to adolescence, you know, to toddlers, all the way up to a spiritual mature adult. In fact, the, the same Greek word for perfect in 2 Corinthians 13.9 and, and 2 Timothy 3.17 is translated as growing to manhood in 1 Corinthians 14.20. So that verse says, brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. That word men is the same word translated perfect in, in, in many other verses. And it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul says, okay, you need to be like men. When it comes to understanding, you need to be like men. And the only way to be a man in understanding is to be perfected in the word of God. That's what the understanding is talking about, understanding the word of God and applying it to your life. It's to, have, it's to have a handle on how to rightly divide the word of truth, like 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says. Because listen, when you're not a man, you're a child. And Paul's desire for the Corinthians was that they grow up. It was a call to maturity. And I think God's call to us today is the same. It's a call to maturity. And something that we need to pay attention to, we, we see this same teaching throughout the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, it says, For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And ye become such as have need of milk, and not a strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age." That's, that's the same word, same Greek word translated perfect most other places in your Bible. A full age. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So strong meat, having a handle on the word of God, it belongs to them who are grown up, who are, who are men. To them who are mature, perfected in the word of God, of, of full age. And then tying this back to where we started in Ephesians chapter 4, look what Paul said down in verses 13 and 14, right after the two verses we already read. Why? What, what's the goal? So pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Why? What's that do? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our model. That's our standard. It's the, it's the word of God. He, he is the standard, that we henceforth be no more children. It's, it's the same principle. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in, lie in wait to deceive. So this is what Paul is trying to get across. Don't be children when it comes to understanding God's word. Don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Don't fall to the deception of the enemy. Don't believe the lies he sends your ways. Don't believe the false teachers. The solution is being a perfect man, a mature man. Again, there's no such thing as sinless perfection. That's not what we're talking about. But you can be complete. It's someone who has a handle of, of God's word. Someone who can apply that to their life. And this is Paul's desire. Because like he said in verse 10, he wants to build them up. With everything he said, even the hard stuff that we saw last week, it's not to tear them down. This was not for destruction. He's not trying to destroy them. He wants them to grow in the process of perfection, in the process of sanctification. And Paul had already told them this. Again, this is a summary. You know, this is a summary message. He's wrapping up kind of the key points, both last week and this week, what we've seen, both last week and this week. He's wrapping up the key points of what he wants to get across. So he'd already told them this, 2 Corinthians 10.8. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord had given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. And again, he's, he's talking about the authority he had over them and, 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 and how he was coming at them very directly. And this just goes back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul was a good pastor, a good spiritual father. His whole goal was to edify them, to build them up. But sometimes that edification comes through sharpness. And he's, that's, that's what he says, if, if I was there with you, it'd be sharp. I'm writing to you now, so you don't have to, don't have to worry about all the sharpness. 
You know, and he talked about that and what we saw last week. If I come again that third time, I'm, I can't spare it. I can't spare you. I'll, I'll deal with it. And listen, just to make this very practical, that, that was my sermon last week. I, I promise you it was because I love you and want the best for you. It was not to tear you down. It was not for the sake of good preaching. I don't even know if it was good preaching. I don't know how to define that. And I, and I mean that because it's, it's only good if God does something with it. But it wasn't for any of that. It was to be honest with what I see out of the word of God and to help build you up. The speaking truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, the next verse in that passage. is grace seasoned with salt, Colossians 4.6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. It's truth and love. It's grace and salt. And sometimes it burns a little bit. But if it's true, it should help you. Paul was always honest with the Corinthians. And he didn't shy away from that, speaking some very hard but true things. But it always came from that position of love. If you remember back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, again, summarizing all Paul has told them. He said even though he was hard on them in his first letter, it was worth it. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. And the first letter he wrote, was, it was very firm, and it was very confrontive, and it, was, it, it stripped them naked, and it revealed their sin of rebellion against him and against the truth. But some of them repented. It led some of them to repentance, and they res responded to his sharpness. But the goal was never to humiliate them. The goal was always to bring them to that place of repentance, because that's part of the process of spiritual perfection. Listen, we're all going to fall because we're not perfect. Because we're always going to sin. And we're always going to stumble. And so part of that process of sanctification in your life is that surrendering aspect of, of owning up to when you blow it. And just repenting before the Lord. Man, just, Proverbs 24, 16, just man falls seven times. Or, or, or a wicked man falls seven times. I don't know what the, the verse says. The righteous man riseth up again. The wicked shall fall into mischief. A just man falls seven times. The righteous, he's going to rise back up. The wicked's going to stay down. It's, it's, it's not about stumbling and falling. It's about what do you do when that happens? Do you own up to it for your sake, for the sake of your kids, for everybody around you, and repent to the Lord and get it right and start back? Each day brings a new opportunity to serve the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Isn't God good that way? Each day, man, a new opportunity to spend with him. A new opportunity to serve him. A new opportunity to glorify him with your life. How, man, how great that is. It doesn't matter. To a certain extent, it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. Get it right today. Get it right today. Go serve him today. And, and, and that was Paul's desire. Just because of his love, they were his passion. He was willing to sacrifice everything he had, even his life, for the Corinthians. Because that's what good fathers do. They build. They build even to their own detriment. And let me show you why. Because when you get these first two wishes down, then you get the third almost automatically. And that is this. It's an inward, Paul's inward wish for them which is peace. And when you are pure, and when you, you keep yourself from sin, and then when you do fall into it, you get it right before the Lord. And you wash yourself with the cleansing of, of, of his word. And you spend time in God's word, and you grow to maturity. The result of that is going to be an inner peace. You have a promise from the Lord with that. And that's exactly what many of the Corinthians here at least the ones that had fallen for this deception, they didn't have. And Paul so wanted it for them. And, and let me say it for the umpteenth time, as all good fathers do. Man, listen, I so much want peace for my kids. I don't want them to have a, 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 a sorrowful life. And, but that's not dependent upon circumstance, because here's what I want for them. I want for them a, a peaceful life in trusting the Lord. Because peace isn't dependent upon circumstance, it's dependent upon trust. It's dependent upon where you're placing your trust. But, 
But, but this is how Paul, this is his capstone, his farewell. This is how he ends this book. And, and all of these things can be summed up with peace that you see in here twice. Look at verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. We've already talked about that. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. That's a promise. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This is his final wish for them. And it involves comfort and love and peace. And this is how we should desire to live our lives. In peace. In a place of peace. Because we have an intimate relationship with the Prince of Peace. Colossians 3.15, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. And that word rule means to govern. It should lead us. It should lead us because, again, it's not based on our circumstances. It's based on where we're placing our trust. I mean, if you're trusting the government, I don't know how much peace you can have. But if you're trusting the Lord, you're covered. And in, in, in no matter what you're dealing with and whatever is, is going on around you. But what you have to know, what everybody in here has to know, is that you can only live your life in peace if you have a personal relationship with, like I said, the Prince of Peace, that source of peace. You only gain peace with God when you accept his son Jesus Christ as your Savior. In the prophetic picture of Jesus dying for our sins, the prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. We know from 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Paul said, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what that is saying is that peace became sin for us so that we can have peace. Because what is it that keeps us in our life? What is it that keeps us from having peace? It's sin. Always. It keeps you away from God. It keeps you out of fellowship with God. And I don't care how much you convince yourself that your life is good. You will never have peace apart from him. The sin in your life keeps you separated from God. So God sent the one who is peace, Ephesians 2.14, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And he sent him to take away our sin. And when we accept that offer, then we're brought into peace with God. Our sins are removed. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And we're reconciled to God. What a beautiful thing. I mean, that is absolutely good news. And then and only then can we have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by faith in him can you have peace with God. If, you, if you've not placed your faith in him, you have no peace with God. But listen, once you do that, and once you have that peace with God, then you have to learn to walk in the Spirit so that you can have the peace of God. Because just as sin kept us from God before we were saved, sin will keep us from fellowship with God after we are saved. And and, and how do I know that the peace of God comes from walking in the Spirit? Well, Jesus tells us. Very clearly, John 14, verses 26 and 27, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto thee. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, but I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, here in John 14, Jesus was comforting his disciples because he had been rejected by this time, and, and he, he, they, he knew the end. And he was comforting them because he was going to the cross, and he wasn't going to be with them much longer. 
But he was telling his disciples that even though his leaving, even though he was leaving, his father was going to leave behind the comforter. And a comforter is someone that brings peace. And the comforter that he left behind, he told us who it was in verse 26. It's the Holy Ghost. So what that means is that, that, that God sent Jesus as peace. But even though he's not here anymore, we can still have peace. Because we have the Holy Spirit. If we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside us. So the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is in us. But that means you've got to walk in the Spirit to reap the fruit of the Spirit, which includes peace, according to Galatians 5.22. And if you're not walking in the Spirit, i.e. living your life according to Bible principles, then the peace of God is not going to rule your life. It's not going to rule your home. It's not going to rule your relationships. It's not going to rule your marriage. And at the end of the day, that's where we run into problems every time, not living by Bible principles. And we've just come full circle. It's when we're not pure, when we're not in that process of being perfected and, and learning God's word and applying it to our life, then we're not going to have peace. This is all related to how you view this book. It's all related to the position that you hold the word of God in your life. But when we do have those things, when, 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 when we are staying, keeping ourselves pure, and, and we're repenting when, when we fall, and we're, and we're getting right, and, and we're spending time with God through his word, and we're learning it, and we're doing the best, we're applying it in our life, and, and that perfection process, that maturation process, when we're doing that, then peace is absolutely possible. In fact, it's promised. But it takes the right perspective. It takes the right thought process. This is something the Corinthians struggled with that we, we saw in much detail. Because you get the peace of God through having the right mind. It, this all goes back to God's word. It's taking on the mind of Christ and running everything you do, everything you say through his word. That's how you have peace. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 9, you know these verses. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of Peace shall be with you. And that word careful that you saw at the very beginning of verse 6, it means take thought. It's, it's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 64 when he says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So take no thought, be careful for nothing. That means don't allow your circumstances. What's going on with you today, what you... The, the struggles that you have, which are very real and very hard, many and most of them. Don't allow that to drive, the circumstance to drive your peace. Trust the Lord in the midst of it. And, and while it'll still be difficult, you know, the Bible never tells us that he'll take away that pain and suffering while we're on this earth. But that's separate than having peace. You can be at your deepest despair. You can be in, in the toughest moment of your life and still have peace because you're just trusting. I mean, it's all you got left in that moment. And just trust the Lord. Take no thought. Be careful for nothing. And that's where peace comes from. It's available to you if you can discipline your mind and you can think right according to what the Word of God has to say. Put off the works of the flesh. Put on the mind of Christ. Put Colossians 3 to work in your life. And if you haven't read Mark Trotter's Things Above book, you should do that. It will help you, I promise you. If you will read it and, and, and study his word and apply it in your life, it will help you. And like Philippians 4 says, that peace will keep your hearts and minds. And that word keep means to watch, to protect. So if you just keep your mind right. Thinking on the things that are true, that are biblical. 
If you allow the Spirit of God to lead you and guide you, then the fruit of the Spirit will keep you when you can't even keep yourself. And it will protect you and watch over you even in the midst of whatever is going on around you. It's what the Bible says. It has to be true. That's why it's a peace that passeth all understanding. The natural man can't get it. This comes from God alone. It's the fruit that the Spirit reaps in your life as you rely on Him. As you set your mind and discipline your mind, peace will rule. That is a promise that you have from God. So, so, I, so let me just ask you, because I love you. If you don't have peace, who is to blame? Is God, is God a liar? I don't think so. So just, just surrender and trust what that book says and put it to work in your life. And peace is possible. That's what God says. Let God be true and every man a liar. So if you don't think so, you're the liar. So get your mind right. Get it focused on the right things. You will have what you need. You will have a peace that passeth all understanding. And when Paul wrote that, those verses in Philippians 4, he was pointing back to Isaiah chapter 26. And Isaiah chapter 26 is, talks about a peace that is perfect. Again, that's, that's what the Bible says. And it's another place in the Bible where you see that peace is related to where you put your mind. Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusteth in thee. That, that's the only way. And what a verse that is. What a wonderful promise. And this promise was given to Israel in one of the darkest periods of their history. And it was given as an encouragement at the time. But it was pointing to when the Messiah will have rule of Israel and the entire world. It was pointing to a, a millennium in, in, in prophetic history. So it has some strong doctrinal prophetic implications. But inspirationally, it should prove to be a special help to us today. When we are surrounded by gloom and depression, when we're constantly threatened by three of our greatest enemies, doubt, worry, and fear. Listen, you know how it is. When all is going well, and when the skies are bright, it's easy to read Isaiah 26.3 in somewhat of a superficial way and give an amen to it. But those words bring a different meaning when the sun is hidden and when peace is seemingly afar off. And that verse, like, and the others like it, should provide great comfort to you and should always be in the forefront of our minds because there is no promise anywhere in the Bible which tells us that we will experience freedom from trouble. That you don't find in the Bible. In fact, there are promises of the Bible which say the opposite. While we are on this earth, we will suffer. and We will face persecution and trials and tribulations. But listen, there is something far better than being removed from our troubles. The, this promise here is that we can have peace in the midst of them. And listen... What value would freedom from trouble be if we still didn't have inward peace? What value would that be? Yeah, we're not dealing with the struggles of this life, but we don't have the peace that the Lord provides. Many of you might understand that. And maybe you're not dealing with anything, you know, super troubling today. But you don't have peace. But how wonderful it is that in the midst of the fiercest battle, and while the storm is at its height, the trusting soul can experience inward peace, a, a, a calm, quiet confidence in the Lord. Because you're trusting in him. In your weakness, he's made strong. But the truth is, just like the Corinthians, we're only going to be able to have peace if we get our purity and our perfection in order. And with respect to the Corinthians, we don't know if they did. Neither history nor the Bible tell us if they got it right. We don't know what necessarily came of this specific group of Corinthians after Paul wrote this letter. We don't have record of him going for that third in-person trip. I don't know if he did or didn't. But here's what we do know, and here's what Paul knew. They had all the resources within themselves to get it right. And so do we. To live in peace with the Lord, with each other, with Paul. All the, all the things needed to change are within you, assuming you are a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, 
You actually don't have the resources within you to change, not spiritually. You need to get saved and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and then you can change. But assuming you've already done that, you have it all. Paul ends with the Trinity. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. In the Trinitarian God, all bases are covered. He's got you at every angle, but you've got to do your part. So will you? Will you take what you've learned from this book study on on ministry and apply it to your life? Will you not get caught up in the temporal and place your focus on the eternal? Not only for yourself, but for the next generation, for the kids of this church. Because if you do, good days are ahead. Peace for sure, but it only comes through purity and perfection. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as always, as we prepare to sing one final song, I I want you to use this time to look within and to see if there's anything within you that needs changed. I want you to ask the Lord to reveal anything within you that needs to be dealt with. Do you have sin in your life? And if so, repent of it and get it right. Are you on the path of perfection, of, of spiritual maturity? If not, why not? Or maybe you don't even know Jesus as your Savior. Well, if any of those things apply, get it right with the Lord this morning. Learn peace with God so that you can have the peace of God. Use this time of worship as a time of reflection and prayer. That's actually what true worship is anyway. And then if you need to get something right, do it. Get it right in your pew. Come forward during the song if you need to. Don't leave today until you get the help that you need. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We're so thankful again for your word, for all you do in our lives through it. And it is the answer. It is the only answer that that this world has at its disposal. But Lord, it's the answer to everything. And so Lord, I pray that you use it in our life. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts them right now to get saved this morning, to place their faith in you so that they can finally have peace with you. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.